2: back to the second hour of turning hard times into good times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I uh, want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show uh, economically viable. They are Blue Goldwaters Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Belmoreal Resources, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me, again, Gene Epstein. He's a, a regular guest on the show the first Tuesday of every month. That's because he heads up uh, something called the New York City Juncho. that is on the first thursday of every month that's one of the reasons we like to have gene on the first tuesday of every month to tell us about what's going on and gene has really done a remarkable job uh... i was attending the new york city junto meetings before gene got involved uh, and since he's come on uh, to help pull that together, it has really become a very enjoyable uh, a very enjoyable meeting. The first Thursday of every month, it's held uh, at the General Society Library at 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in New York City. That's not far from uh, Grand Central uh, Terminal. Gene Epstein, of course, writes uh, the Economic Beat column in Barron's. Uh, and he has also written a book that I think is probably worth people spending some time uh, reading as well uh... because it uh... it really sort of i think brings together a lot of the problems we're seeing now the the deception in government the government statistics how government uh... spins things in a way that makes them look good is not always uh... it is not always and perhaps you might uh, as ronald reagan suggested um what was it ronald reagan said he said he's uh, they say politics is the second oldest perfection, and he's been around it long enough to know it has a great deal in common with the oldest profession. So Gene Epstein's book uh, that he's written, I think, uh, sort of po- points out what the realities are, at least with respect to economic numbers. Uh, so uh, I want to thank you, Gene, for joining me again today. Always a pleasure, Yeah. You know, you've done—you really have done a remarkable job there, and you've had some great guests. We had Judge Napolitano last week. We had John Mackey uh, last month, I should say, and John Mackey uh, before that. And now you've got David Stockman coming on uh, this week. Uh, talk to us a little bit about about David Stockman and and what he has to offer. Uh, well, those David attend.
3: David is uh, has sort of a unique role to play as a commentator because he was very much an insider. Early in his career, he was a congressman and then he became a budget director during Ronald Reagan's first term. And of course, that was a pretty important first term in terms of what happened to taxes. But mm-hmm. uh, David, who I guess is naturally a rebel, went on uh, to uh, write a book indicting that period because he felt that there were not commensurate cuts in spending. And then he went on to a business And now he's written a sizzling doorstop of a book called The Great Deformation, in which uh, he names a rogues gallery of villains, including uh, George W. Bush, in his view, including Ben Bernanke. And uh, he has a very mixed review of his former boss, Ronald Reagan. And in fact, he has uh, uh, some nice words to say about Bill Clinton. And indeed, uh, in my article on uh, the baby boomer budget bomb uh i quote david about uh, clinton and about uh, george w bush
2: yeah i i think um uh, I think David Stockman uh, is a pretty independent guy, as you say, a mm-hmm. rebel. And we did, we've we had David on this show a couple of times. You talk about his mm-hmm. The Great Deformation is the name of his book. It is a doorstopper of a book yeah. because it's a heavy book, 700-plus pages, uh, lots of meat in there. And I'm, I'm sure I was really delighted to hear him this morning on Tom Keene on, on Bloomberg oh. uh, mm-hmm. really defending um, you know, the Republican position to a great extent uh, with respect to uh, what's going on. Not that he is defending Republicans in general, mm-hmm. but with respect to them hanging tough on this budget issue uh, and wanting fairness for all the people. I mean, why should politicians be given certain, certain advantages and not be obliged uh, to join up with uh, Obamacare when everybody else is? How do you figure that one?
3: Well, they, they certainly the rabble rousing Republicans are uh, paying uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, uh, some uh, d- due when, uh, as you as you know, Rahm Emanuel famously said, "Don't let a crisis go to waste." Uh-huh. And he Elaborated by that, I mean that maybe a crisis provides you with the opportunity to change certain things you couldn't change before, uh-huh. and so uh, indeed uh, the uh, rabble rousers are not uh, letting a crisis go go to waste. They're taking the advice of Obama's own former chief of staff.
2: Very very good. I, I, a little bit turnabout fair play, you might say. Um, all right, well, let's get on to your cover story. Uh, you you wrote uh, this weekend in Barron's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the b- budget disaster, I guess, is, is uh, what the front page of Barron's said. Uh, and, and, and I do really want to focus on that. But before we get to that, uh, it seems to me that the... Uh, uh, well, no, I guess I guess we, we really ad- address that then. It's the fairness issue here with the Republicans, and there was one, uh, one Democrat that said it's not about fairness. I'm not sure what it's about. Uh, but the whole idea that, that somehow these guys can get away with things that the rest of us can't. Uh, well, Obamacare, as you point out in your article, is an issue for sure. It's a big issue. But you point out there's a lot of other things that are really, that are really coming up that are going to cause us an awful lot of trouble, Medicaid, mm-hmm. Medicare, Social Security, uh, how, do, how does Obamacare, um, how does that compare relative to those in terms of the budget problems that we yeah. face? Well, the the irony is that
3: probably uh, the uh, biggest contribution uh, to the baby boomer budget bomb uh, does not come from Obamacare. It probably uh, came uh, from George W. Bush's Medicare Part D legislation, uh, which uh, furthered uh, care uh, for the elderly. the 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 main there's no question that Obamacare and uh, and and all of the spending of government is is one way or another putting us on a track where government is unaffordable. That's the sort of the very nature of politicians, and uh, the, and ever since, as Stockman uh, documents, ever since the Republican Party gave up all pretense of being the party of rectitude, and in fact, uh, the only uh, politician who ever sounded like he had any real rectitude, president, that is, who sounded like he had some sense of fiscal ref, rectitude, was briefly Bill Clinton in 1999. Ninety-nine and 2000 when he thought that the budget surpluses should be maintained and, and, uh, and should uh, be, inv- be saved for the baby boomers' uh, uh, eventual retirement. But Obamacare uh, is, is oddly uh, an exacerbating factor, but the one thing that we can be sure of is the demographic trends. The, mm-hmm. When we look at the future, uh, we know that uh, the budget can explode for all kinds of reasons, and the, and the future is indeed a very difficult thing to divine, but while demographics is not old, always destiny, we know that it's a pretty good predictor, and uh, when we look at uh, the ratio between people, the number of people over 65, and the number of people 18 to 64 in this country, uh, it's currently 4.4 people uh, under 65 taking care of uh, every one person over 65, and that number is, is falling. It's going to plummet to 2.7 in about 12, 13, 14 years. Then that's that's sort of inevitable, and that's why, ironically, uh, when we look at the next 10 years, there are some really murky questions as to whether there will be a fiscal crisis or not, or whether somehow the budget will muddle through. What we can be reasonably sure of, however, is that the explosion uh, will come around 15, 16, 17 years from now, when the baby boomers reach critical mass and when the enormous expense of all of the elder care entitlements will consequently explode the budget and uh, and, and consequently explode uh, the debt in relation to gross domestic product. And that that's the uh, scenario that was put forward uh, recently by the nonpartisan, relatively Keynesian, relatively liberal-leaning pro-government Congressional Budget Office. I use them as... As my primary source, they Mm -hmm. released their findings uh, on uh, September 17th, and the findings were virtually ignored in Washington. And if the Congressional Budget Office is worried, very worried, the rest of us should be pretty scared.
2: Yeah, and these would be, as you say, predominantly Keynesian thinkers uh, that that believe that the government's doing the right thing by stimulating the economy, by deficit spending, Mm -hmm. by printing money to pay for it, and so forth Mm -hmm. and so on. And if they are... Uh, reticent about what's going on, then God help us. But but, Gene, you mentioned um, I think uh, GDP debt to GDP. Give us some sense of where we are now, where we've been in the past. There was an excellent uh, chart, uh, an excellent graphic, actually, at the end of your article that really gave us a historical perspective, going all the way back uh, to the Civil War period uh, time period and up to the present. Can you can you give our listeners some sense of where we are now? where we've been in the past and where we seem to be headed given this very definite you know as you as you point out demographics are very certain almost about as certain as anything we can have in economic statistics yes. but but mm-hmm. but give us some sense of where mm-hmm. we are at and and where that puts us in in terms of uh, relative to some other countries uh, that are in trouble these days yes well, the
3: the debt the, the debt which is measured as debt held by the public, uh, and uh, it's actually a smaller number than gross public debt, uh, and uh, and because it's a smaller number, it's it, it's it's scary enough. Uh, it's debt held by the public right now. About half of it is held abroad, held by foreigners. Uh, it's about twelve trillion dollars right now. That debt uh, is then put in ratio to nominal gross domestic product, which is a conventional measure, I don't swear by it, but it's a useful enough measure of the economy's ability to uh, bear the debt. Now, that mm-hmm. debt-to-GDP ratio from 1850 uh, to about uh, 1980 uh, followed a fairly predictable pattern. Whenever there was a major war, the debt-to-GDP ratio would explode. Uh, whenever that war ended, the debt to be GDP ratio would fall and uh, those major wars were the Civil War, World War I and World War Two. It turns out you really need a major war for that to happen. There were other wars the United States fought. There was a Spanish American war. Most recently uh, there was the uh, Korean War, the Vietnam War uh, much, but then in, in the case of the Korean War and Vietnam War, much larger wars than any of the wars we fought over the last 10 years and yet Those wars were not sufficient uh, to have any discernible effect on the debt-to-GDP ratio. The only exception when the debt-to-GDP ratio began to rise was with the onset of the Great Depression. But otherwise, uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio always fell after war and uh, always rose whenever there was a major war. But otherwise, there was no great, no discernible pattern in it. Now, ever since the year 2000 and really back to 1980, there has been a very unique pattern. Suddenly you don't need a war uh, you don't need any kind of uh, major depression uh, to push the debt to debt to debt to GDP ratio up. In the 1980s, as Stockman would point out, there were major tax cuts, but they were not accompanied by major spending cuts, and so the debt to GDP ratio began to soar uh, disconcertingly. Uh, by the 1990s, because of the end of the Cold War, uh, because uh, Hillary Care was defeated because there was an economic boom, the debt-to-GDP ratio fell again. And indeed, that's when Bill Clinton began to say, we've got surpluses, we should save for the future and save for the baby boomers. But then, when, with the year 2000, uh, the ratio began to rise. And again, we can't blame it on those wars, uh, because those wars were minor, the Iraqi war that is and the Afghanistan war. Uh, we really can't even blame it on the great... Uh, Recession since the Great Recession was quite mild compared to the Great Depression, and uh, the Great Depression didn't even have such a huge effect, effect on the debt to GDP ratio. Really, what we've been experiencing is a renewed rapacity on the part of politicians. And as Stockman again has pointed out, both parties have become the parties of spending. Stockman's other hero was Dwight Eisenhower, a guy who had been a general and who cut the military budget on his watch. When he was in the White House, that was in Stockman's view, uh, really the last moment in which the Republican Party, uh, at least uh, in terms of its White House uh, representative, was clearly on the side of fiscal rectitude. So now we're completely unmoored. We have a situation in which the debt to GDP ratio always rises. There's almost always a debt that's so large, deficit rather, that is so large, the deficit adds to the debt to such an extent that the debt grows faster than the, than the economy's ability to bear that debt and therefore it go, grows faster than GDP and therefore the debt-to-GDP ratio goes up. But now we're in 2013 and the debt-to-GDP ratio is around 73%. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: the,
3: the Congressional Budget Office, in terms of its, of its most plausible scenario, projects that it will go to 190 uh, percent in 25 years. Now wow. that 100 is unprecedented. Uh, We can compare it, if you want to compare it, with that of Greece. Um, Now, Greece's um, uh, measure actually is a bit exaggerated, but Greece was at 160%. Uh, We're going to be, we could easily be at 190%. Uh, There are some who compare it to Japan's ratio, which is indeed quite high. Uh, It's a little difficult to compare it with Japan because their measure is a bit different, Uh, but let's say that we where the 190% is as bad as Japan. Well, Japan has one key advantage. The debt is is virtually all owned by Japanese. It's owned mm-hmm. domestically. Half of our debt is owned uh, by foreigners. And that and that half could easily become 60% and 70% uh, over the next 25 years or even perhaps three quarters. So we have a particularly difficult uh, situation with respect to our debt, and as that debt rises, uh, we don't know where the interest rate is going to go. The cost of servicing that debt—that uh, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, to its credit, points out—that while they, they estimate that the, that the debt servicing could go up to six percent, it's currently at around one point three percent due to uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, policies. But it could go to 6%, they say. But then once they push it at 6%, they they then uh, hasten to add that 6% is probably a very low estimate. It's probably a low estimate because it's based upon patterns of the past. And the patterns of the past have very little to do with the patterns of the future. Because in the future, the bond market is going to know and expect that the debt to GDP ratio will have nowhere to go but up. In the past, the debt to GDP ratio would fluctuate go up and down. Now mm-hmm. it's going to be in an upward trajectory, and as they point out, there's really no telling how high the interest rate can go. And if okay. treasury debt is going to be uh, sold at prices that we normally associate with junk bonds, then what's going to happen to the interest rate on private sector debt? And how will the private sector be able to function um, if its interest rates are, are have to be higher than treasury rates and will move into the double digits? Therefore, again... The SIBO is afraid of a fiscal crisis. Well, absolutely. And, and
2: Gene, yeah. I have to ask you this. In, in looking at this 190% yeah. uh, projection by the OMB, mm-hmm. what sort of interest rate assumptions, what sort of uh, GDP growth uh, assumptions yeah. do they have built in there?
3: Well, that's a good question. They... Uh they project a 2.3% rate of growth in real GDP. And uh, they're trying to be conservative. The way they put it is it's gonna be, they have it as a steady 2.3%, even though of course they point out that we know there are gonna be some recessions and there are some slowdowns, but they're not gonna tell us and they can't tell us, of course, when those recessions are gonna happen. So they have a steady 2.3% rate of growth assumed for the next 25 years. Now part of the problem there is that it could be erring on the optimistic side because mm-hmm. since 2000 over the last 13 years uh the rate of growth has been 1.7% and uh that's you know factoring in the the, uh, the mild recession of 2001 and the more serious recession of 08 and 09 uh but you know there were periods of growth and since the recession ended growth has run about 2.3% but again 2.3% has got to include economic slowdowns and it probably very possibly errs on the high side uh, but again even if it is going to be 2.3% the debt could go to 190% but that's the risk and then indeed the further risk to the uh, to the forecast is that they assume a 6% cost of debt servicing and of course when the debt starts to go to 150% of GDP 160% the cost of debt servicing becomes huh. huge and, oh yeah uh, yeah and, uh, and so if you play with uh, that assumption, 6%, and push it to 8% or 9%, which is still quite plausible, then you get an even worse result. The point is that no matter what assumptions you make, as the SIBO very specifically said, we are an un- on an unsustainable course. We have to do something. And we have to do something uh, as soon as possible, even though, as you, as you rightly pointed out, this, the SIBO is a very good source for this kind of scary scenario because they're Keynesians. they sort of—they're—they're uh, they're very fond of government debt. They think yeah. it stimulates the economy, and in fact, uh, they got caught uh, in, in a uh, in a sort of on a, a one hand on the other hand kind of statement because they are actually concerned if we start cutting debt debt and deficits right now because mm-hmm. they believe that the expansion depends on debt and deficits. So they sort of. Uh, they slip on their own Keynesian banana peel, and uh, they have a little bit of trouble suggesting that in the next two, three years, we start taming the budget. Even though prior to this, they usually said that we have to start right away. And we obviously have to start right away for the most obvious of reasons. We're talking about entitlements for, for, for old people. Uh, yeah. you, can't, you can't tell 70-year-olds that we're suddenly cutting your checks out. You have to tell 50-year-olds to plan on it when they are 70. That's mm-hmm Mm why we've got to take advantage of the next 10 15 years and start doing something about the problem right now
2: Gene let me ask you the 190% of GDP then is that built into it a 6% uh, interest rate yeah 6% interest rate uh, by uh, 2023, as and a uh, 20,
3: uh, by 2038, rather 25 years from now, and a uh, a two uh, a 2.3 percent rate of growth in GDP. If you you know, I didn't even I, they they didn't even bother to seebo, and of course you could scare yourself to death if you start putting in a something like a nine percent interest rate and right. something more like a 1.7 percent rate of growth, which is what it, which as I say is what it's been for the last 13 years. So wow. even on the basis of fairly uh, Conservative assumptions, you get a pretty frightening result. And all of it, all of it is pretty much based upon, uh, uh, three assumptions. One of them, the most rock bottom assumption, which is that, uh, the dependency ratio, the share of the old people in relation to the potential taxpayers, is going to plummet, uh, from 4.4 to, to every old person to 2.7 for every old person, uh, in about 15, 20 years. In addition, uh, the assumption, uh, that medical care uh, costs are going to increase although in this go round the SIBO factored in a much slower rate of increase than they did in the past because there has been some slowed growth in medical care uh, uh, costs, and therefore they made the most of that so they have a slowed growth assumption and then as they say obviously if you push the interest rate to 6% and, and it's going to be a 6% attached to a, a debt that's 100 90% of GDP, then of course you're going to explode uh, your cost and, you, and that in itself is, that will feed on itself in its own right. So it's really those assumptions that push it up and all of them are pretty
2: sound assumptions uh, mm-hmm. plausible enough for any responsible government to take them seriously. Well, it's uh, it is it is a very frightening situation to make sure to be sure of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. would tell our listeners if you haven't picked up a copy of Barrons, you should do so to read Gene's article. It's an excellent article, and I think mm-hmm. more than anything, uh, that chart at the end of the article mm-hmm. really is very interesting and very telling, mm-hmm. I think. But you know, Gene, as you were talking about it, I'm looking at this chart and seeing that the debt-to-GDP ratio actually came down during the Korean War and the Vietnam War, for the most part. That's right, uh, and yeah. then with Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan, when mm-hmm. we really decided to outspend the Soviets and military spending, it went up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going up a lot now, as you say, to 73%, almost double mm-hmm. where it was back in, in 2000, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and And now from here... It just grows exponentially, and it just seems like we're on a on a um, uh, you know like rats on a treadmill or something. I mean, there's no way it has to be more and more faster and faster. Uh, So, Mister Bernanke or his successor, uh, are they going to ever be able to taper? In your view? (laughs) Well, uh,
3: probably. Probably the, uh, the 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 tapering has has got to happen. I mean, it's the, the pressure for it. You know, we've gotten to a point where uh, usually uh, a former Fed chairman doesn't criticize a current Fed chairman, but you know, both former Fed chairman Paul Volcker and former Fed chairman Alan Greenspan expressed a lot of concern and anxiety about what Bernanke is doing, and uh, it's difficult to imagine that there won't be some pressure. I mean, now you see. Now you're getting into something more interesting where the real professionals uh, can make their pronouncements. I'm making a very easy prediction, which is that the trends are inexorably leading toward uh, a version of disaster 15 years down the road. I mean, you're asking the more interesting question, which is that, uh, well, that's kind of an easy call. How about making a tough one? You know, what, what about the potential for disaster a few years down the road, or indeed uh, less than a year down the road? Uh, more interesting and, uh, and also quite possible, uh, yeah. but a, a, a different story altogether.
2: You know, we have about yeah. three minutes left here. I, yeah. There was another very interesting assumption that mm-hmm. uh, you pointed out in your article having mm-hmm. to do with uh, cutting doctor's pay. Yeah. There's been a, 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 a apparently... A move to try to cut the pay that doctors receive from insurance companies, uh, you know, and, and to me, I don't know about you, Gene, maybe you're healthier than I, when I go to my doctor, especially the general practitioner here in New York City that I've recently, uh, I've stopped going to him, I'm going to see someone else now because he just became so disgruntled and so unhappy uh, about conditions. In New York City, he says, you know, my costs are going up dramatically, at the same time these insurance companies are paying me as much as if I were practicing medicine in Iowa or Ohio or someplace, mm-hmm. and then and, and he's pointing out that it, that it just, and, and then my wife recently in the hospital, and I observed what was going on with the nurses, tremendous pressure. It seems to me they've cut back the medical staff about as much as humanly possible, and yet we're being told, at uh, the Cleveland Clinic the other guy, day, the CEO was saying about how he's going to have to cut 30% of his staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't know half a billion dollars out of his budget or something like that. I mean, how in, it, the, the the OMB mm-hmm. assumption is that there's going to be cutting of doctors' pay, as I understand your article. Do I have that right? Well, no. The,
3: well, actually, uh, the the, uh, the the assumption in, in uh, what in the baseline scenario that the SIBO has, which is that the, by law the doctors' pay is going to be cut. But but the, but every year for the last ten years. That that cut is cancelled. It's it's now been colloquially called the doc fix. And so uh, you, you're 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 opening up a very intriguing issue having to do with uh, with whether and how bureaucracies can ever cut and become more efficient. I believe that's inherently impossible. They don't when they cut they don't become more efficient. They just become more dysfunctional. But mm-hmm. uh, but the narrow issue you you're, you're focusing on, which has to do with the with the idea the the mandate in the law that doctors fees be cut for Medicare uh, that keeps getting postponed and that's probably not going to happen but the larger issue that you're raising uh, is, uh, is is in my view uh, a Possibly has a silver lining to it, which is that uh, the amount of disgruntlement and uh, disaffection from the uh, government-dominated medical care system may be such uh, that there'll be a sort of a massive rebellion against it, uh, manifesting itself in different ways. Uh, To some degree, in the in the United in Britain, they really have a two-tier system, where where people with money um, go to the private sector, and where the poor people have to go to the national health National Health Service uh, there was a, a few years ago a, a great scan great and sort of a greatly ironic scandal uh, in the National health system it was discovered that people who work in the national health system were going to the private sector at at, at government expense in order to get their medical uh, needs filled um, in other words they were disaffected from the system that they themselves run and I believe that a lot of that could happen in the US I, I think that's really the only hope the only real hope to address the problem that we're talking about are I think radical solutions from below market solutions uh, that are beginning to happen uh, my uh, son who's a reason journal, journalist with the reason has done fascinating uh, research into the surgery center in Oklahoma City run by a free market uh, a surgeon named Keith Smith who 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 does manage to run things efficiently and at much lower cost but that's that's because he runs things on a business prin- business principles when bureaucracies cut they cut in all the wrong places they don't cut the dead wood at the top because the dead wood at the top is usually doing the cutting and they won't cut their own jobs so yeah. that's why uh, cuts really never make much uh, they're never much of a solution at all they usually just make the bureaucracy more dysfunctional than ever before
2: Gene we are out of time unfortunately i i want you to tell me though your son's name and and how can people google his work? Work because I've well, seen well. A, a video... <laughs> well
3: thank you thank you for that uh, for that
2: invitation to plug
3: my son of whom I'm very proud his well, name is Jim Epstein G-I-M and Epstein E-P-S-T-E-I-N if you google if you put his name in with Reason uh, Reason video and uh, Reason TV you can get all his uh, recent videos and articles especially the one about the surgery center which I highly recommend
2: it was a fascinating uh, video I watched it and I'd like to get Jim sometime on my show I know I've talked to you about this gene in the past but uh, uh, we are out of time thank you very very much much. Sure. I look forward to seeing you uh, this coming Thursday, uh, just in two days from now, at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues here in New York City. And of course, your guest is going to be David Stockman. It should be another full house, mm-hmm. just as it was for Judge Napolitano last month. Thank you very much for being with me again, Gene, and look forward to talking to you. Look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to right back uh, with Daniel McAdams, who heads up Ron Paul's Institute for Peace and Prosperity. We're going to get Daniel's take on that portion of the military that is buggering our our budget, uh, and some other very interesting insights into geopolitics that uh, Daniel will have with us. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me again Daniel McAdams. He's the Executive Director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Daniel, good to have you back again. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, I, your, website, your website, the institute's uh, Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity website, uh, is always very, very interesting to me. Uh, and there's new stuff up there almost every day, right?
4: Yeah, sure. We try to have several new things a day.
2: Absolutely, and, and one of the most amusing and sort of fun things that I came across was own a piece of Ron Paul history. Uh, it's a it's a picture of Ron Paul's car when he first went into Congress. I guess parked next to Tip O'Neill's very expensive car. Ron had a I don't know Chevette or something like that.
4: Seventy nine Chevette, exactly. Yeah, a
2: four door, <laughs> uh, a four door sedan, and he had it parked next to Tip O'Neill, uh, and I think it was somebody that said. Um, the government is like Tip O'Neill, uh, O'Neill, big, fat, and out of control. The budget, the budget, the U.S. government is like, I don't know it was Ronald Reagan that said that. Of course, Ronald Reagan, as David Stockman has told us on this show and has, has talked about, uh, not in such flattering terms about Ronald Reagan either, because Ronald Reagan spent untold tri- uh, billions and billions of dollars for the defense, so-called sure. defense uh, or whatever. But uh, interesting article there. Uh, tell us, just take a minute and tell us a little bit about what that's about.
4: Well, it's a great story, and actually um, our old friend Lou Rockwell was uh, was part of the mischief. He had uh, Ron Chevette parked next to Tip's uh, monster limousine after Tip had said that everyone's going to have to cut back and start going into the gas rationing lines. Uh, and of course, Except Tip him. had his own uh, gas pump uh, inside the Capitol, so he would not have to deal with any rationing. So apparently Tip uh, just flew through the roof, And, you know, this car was purchased by Dr. Paul in 1979 when he went back to Congress. Uh You know, it's a a pretty, if you look at the pictures, it's a pretty modest car. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, of course, he paid paid for it himself. And, um, but it has a neat history. And so Dr. Paul is is basically going to uh, hand the keys over as a gift to uh, anyone who makes uh, the highest pledge to his uh, Institute for Peace and Prosperity.
2: Oh, what a great idea. uh,
4: and it 's a museum piece, and it 'll even have the original congressional license plates that, that were on it when he drove it, so it 's oh. kind of a neat little piece of history available
2: oh, oh fantastic well that 's one of the more fun things on the site today. I must say i, I got to chuck a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> some of the other things aren 't so much fun or not so funny let 's say yeah. because what we 're talking about is blood and treasure treasury you know, uh, uh, Daniel, I have to ask you this um, and, and there 's so much to talk to you about, but I was uh, driving to Ohio last week and late at night and I heard on the radio some former reporter from the New York Times was talking about uh Iraq and how essentially Iraq is not only not our ally but it's it seems to be working very closely with Iran and and Syria and so forth. So he pointed out that after we spent a trillion dollars of of money and you know countless human lives uh, that that in fact nothing has turned out the way it was supposed to in Iraq. Do you would you care to comment on that?
4: Well, the whole the whole war on terror, the whole post two thousand and one endeavor to remake the Middle East has turned out that way. You know, and it's it's not so much that they're not an ally, which is which is true to a degree, but it's a country in absolute chaos. You know, I mean, yesterday I think it was there was a car bomb that went off and killed fifty five people. Can we you never imagine heard. if that? I mean, we sort of take it for granted. It just rolls off our back. Can you imagine if that happened every day or every other day somewhere in the U.S.? Uh, you know, and, and proportionally, look at the populations between the two countries. So it's, it's an absolute disaster there. And everywhere we've tried to remake, look at, um, look at Egypt. Look at the great success story Tunisia, whose government Mm. is absolutely falling apart. Uh, look at their grand plans for Libya. The whole place is run by these, these horrible militias. Um, so everywhere they 've tried to remake the world it 's just ended up a disaster
2: daniel i 'd like to get your sense of uh, and I know we 've talked to your former colleague Jeff Dice about this, but i, I can 't remember the numbers and i didn 't really get into it with gene Epstein, but how much of our budget is uh, involved in the military with military spending and i 'm not talking uh, well military spending sure
4: well, there are a couple of interesting figures you know and when, when I talk about percentage of total expenditures. Uh, go back, you have to go back to 2010 I think for at least from what I've seen and you've got between 28 and 38 percent of total budgeted expenditures uh, but when you look at it in terms of tax, re- tax revenues uh, we're spending on military and this is this is not defense, this is something that Dr. Paul always says, defense is very different than military spending. Absolutely, so much, of, much of military spending is for the military industrial complex uh, defense spending is, is is necessary and it's a constitutional function of government. But when you talk about in terms of total tax revenue, in 2010, uh, we spent between 42 and 57 percent total tax revenue on the military budget. So mm-hmm. that is just an unsustainable level. You know, a country can't survive spending to this degree on militarism. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's uh, and in 2009, U.S. Uh, U.S. Military spending made up forty percent of the global military spending. So we spend as much as uh, you know forty percent of the total spending in the world. So it's
2: just incredible. Wow, who, who would who would come in next to that?
4: Um, you know, I don't have it in front of me. My guess, you don't because, have it, in front
2: of, yeah, yeah. But I mean, would, I some of the bigger countries, with the with the Euro, European Union, doesn't spend. We we do their <laughs> military stuff for them, right? The European well, Union. China spends quite a bit. You yeah. know, and Russia um, some. Yeah, sure. So, um, Iran and some of those countries. But, yeah,
4: and it's incredible. And If you look at um at 2012, it's interesting because you have between 1 and 1.4 trillion dollars. And this is uh, you know, this is when you look at it not just the DOD budget. You have to look at FBI's counterterrorism. You have to look at all the stuff in the energy department, homeland security, the NASA satellites, but also you have to talk about interest on debt that we incurred in the in past wars. Sure. And that's between $1 and $400 billion a year. Uh, wow. So you have, it's just, it's just an unsustainable level of spending. And, uh, you know, the so-called sequester that the military said would, would hollow out the military and, you know, would be invaded, uh, you know, the sequester only reduced the level of defense spending increases, of military increase. Mm-hmm. So without the sequester, we would have increased military spending by twenty percent over the next ten years, with mm-hmm. this horrible draconian uh sequester, we only would increase it by eighteen percent over the next years oh my goodness uh, so that's only the years. only
2: difference and and we're hearing the screaming and hollering about that sure so uh exactly. so somebody's is getting a slight cutback in the in in the in the goodies that are given to the privileged few. what about uh which brings me to a couple of interesting more interesting articles in in today 's uh uh... ron paul institute website uh... from nsa spying uh... sweeps to domestic drones roundup of the police state programs not affected by government so sh- i guess that's what you're talking about those are the kinds of things uh... so we'll, obama will still have his drones nothing nothing to do there i mean if he wants to go after people that he thinks might be a threat uh... for whatever reason wants to kill them, he can do that right
4: yeah and it also shows you how the government views the, the rest of us you know they uh... Yeah they'll have plenty of money to spy on us uh to spy yeah. on everyone else right. uh to conduct all of these uh, horrible wars overseas to grope us at the airports to uh to go into sporting events and with with dogs and sniff everyone uh you know to enforce the patriot act but all of these other things uh, there's just you know they won't have anything for and of course that's what the press does they scare they scare the rest of the country into thinking that the world will end uh, and so far, we're, what, about 14, 15 hours into it. And I don't feel anything different, Jay. I don't know how you feel.
2: Well, I don't either. I, I imagine, you know, I, I understand that some of the veterans might get cut back, the ones that, uh, you know, are not currently in the military. And, and it seems to me, again, that's a, a nice big thank you for the people that put their life on the line for the military-industrial complex. Look Absolutely. what they get. Absolutely,
4: and they're the, first, they're the easiest ones to, to uh, you know, to rip off uh, because they um, – they have they have less of a voice, and they are the first ones to get cut. Uh, you know these people who who, who you know beat their chests and say we're not going to cut you know one penny from our military. Well, these guys serve too, and they earned the benefits that they that they have. So you're absolutely right.
2: You know there was another article, and I don't see it right now as I'm looking at the website. But there was another article basically talking about a false flag on the Damascus gas attacks. Uh, can you talk about that?
4: Sure. That was an interesting report that came out, and I've been following this uh, this woman for quite some time. Her name is Mother Agnes Miriam of the Cross. She's the mother superior of a monastery of Saint James uh, near mm-hmm. Homs in Syria, and she's mm-hmm. not Syrian, but she's been uh, she's been there for some 20 years, uh, ministering to the uh, to the Syrian Christians. Uh-huh. But she put together a very interesting um, uh, NGO, the Institute for Peace, Justice, and Human Rights and they did a i think it's about a 50 page deep analysis of all of these videos that were released uh some of them by Senate Intelligence Committee and some by the government uh that was supposedly proving that the regime the Syrian regime uh had done this August 21st uh, chemical attack and you know i it, it is it gets very complicated but but i have to say uh, looking at their report, there certainly is. There's more than we've been given by our own government. You know, she points out very clearly in using photographic evidence that these same children are photographed in two separate sites uh, at the same time. You know, they seem to be. They seem to be used as props. You can see the same clothing. Uh, you know, the same the same kids. Wow. Uh, and then in a lot of the pictures, you see there are no women at all in these uh, apparently seemingly staged photos. But, you know, the local, um, the local morgue reported that there were quite a few women dead. So there, she, she basically just points out all of the anomalies and all of the very strange uh, things that, around these videos that were supposed to prove uh, that the Syrian government did it. So I think in the interest of a full debate, it's certainly worth considering uh, the evidence that they've come up with.
2: Well, it's a, not much of a chance we're going to get a full debate, is there?
4: No. Uh, you know, it's uh,
2: And why not? I mean, why <laughs> why not? If if uh, you know, just Obama says just trust us, we know what we're talking about. yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I mean as as I just mentioned to Gene Epstein, Ronald Reagan Noted that um, uh, politics is the second oldest profession has a great deal in common with the oldest profession. he said, <laughs> so now we 're supposed to just trust us uh, just trust just trust the politicians, which of course the founders of this country uh, didn't believe in doing at all uh, Daniel, you mentioned and i and I think this is a point that Ron Paul made in his debates that uh, that mil- you know military spending isn't the same as defense spending, so how much do you think we really would need? I mean I know this is not something that you've uh, had time to think about very much. But you know, how much are we spending? A a trillion a year? One point four trillion a year in, yeah, in military? Right. Exactly. In a, yeah. How much would we need to defend, you know, to keep the bad guys from coming into the United States, uh in our fifty state territory?
4: Well it's an interesting theoretical question. Uh you know, I we could guess what, ten cents on the dollar? Less than that even? If you mm-hmm. you know do do what the maybe do what the Swiss do and everyone Everyone has their own gun and knows how to use it. If, uh, if Mexico decided to invade, I think we wouldn't have too much trouble.
2: You know? Oh, yeah, but, but uh, if our government wants to invade, uh, they don't want that.
4: Yeah, and, you know, Jay, the thing is, if you look, if you look up and down the corridor on the, on the 28 here in Washington, D.C., along the Dulles Corridor, you see what the military-industrial complex has built. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people are living high on the hog. Right, no question on the rest about of it. Yeah. And uh, the rest of the country is not in such good shape, I can assure you. If you see the, the new BMWs and uh, Mercedes in these parking lots, uh, they wrap themselves in the flag, but they're living
2: awfully well. Well, I was just out to uh, my homeland of Ohio. It used to be, uh, in, when I was a, a kid, uh, in the 50s and 60s, a relatively prosperous place because that was sort of the Rust Belt it was now the Rust Belt. It was the industrial belt of the country, and uh, there was uh, you know those people lived fairly well. But since the '70s, and especially since we went off the gold standard, we've seen a tremendous demise in the middle class. Uh, my my uh, engineer is telling me we are out of time. There's so much more I could ask you about, but certainly uh, the whole thing, Daniel, that I would like to talk to you about sometime. Perhaps get your your feelings and sense about is, you know, one of the one of the arguments for a continued military uh, invasion of other countries is the need to keep the dollar as our primary currency, and of course that works very well for the people that can print money. And because they get the first dibs, as, as Ron Paul has pointed out, and they live very, very well, those guys driving the Mercedes and BMWs. So that's just something that I'd like to talk to you about in the future when we've got time, but we don't have time today. So uh, I have to say goodbye and thank you very much again. And, folks, it is the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Just Google that and uh, go to this site. It's a wonderful site. Daniel writes, Ron Paul writes. Lots of, uh, lo- lots of intellectuals uh, on foreign policy are writing here. giving you a view that's different from the warmed-over pablum that we get every day, the propaganda that is getting us to try to think and act in a way that serves the military-industrial complex. If you don't like that, go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and learn up as to what is really going on as opposed to what they want you to think is going on. Okay, thanks again, Daniel, for being with us. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some thoughts about today's show and a word or two about next week's guests. I'll be right back.
1: SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange With the trading symbol SXR, visit our website at www.sgxresources.com.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And uh, just a, a word or two about uh, today's topics that we discussed, uh, starting with Chen Lin uh, talking about the uh, the gold markets. Gold took uh, well, a really big uh, smackdown today of about 40-plus bucks. Uh, and uh, Chen told me, not on the show but before he came on the show, that in fact uh, he has really lightened up on gold at the moment. Now, Chen is in and out of various things from time to time. Uh, But, uh, you know, he thinks it's not out of the the realm of possible that we could see something, uh, that we could see $1,000 yet um, tested uh, in gold. And indeed, if you look at the long-term charts, that is a a very firm resting place, but not until you get there. Uh, Until you get to that level, uh, it's easy to see how... Some people could see uh, that kind of downside yet for gold. I'm not saying it's going to happen. If it does happen, it would be a fantastic buying opportunity. I think we've got a good buying opportunity, especially after a day like today, to buy some of the gold shares. Uh, I am sticking, though, with the producers, the near producers, and, and mostly the producers that have cash flow, that can grow uh, earnings organically, can grow their companies organically, explore, develop, and not have to go out and raise endless amounts of money in the, uh, in the market. Uh, or try actually is, issuing endless numbers of shares to earn, uh, to raise small amounts of money to put holes in the ground. That's a, really a very high-risk uh, proposition. So uh, loading up on companies that are that really have the goods, and and I think it's a very exciting time. Uh, I write about it in my weekly newsletter. I hope that some of you will go to miningstocks.com, sign up, and and see what I'm doing there. Alistair McLeod, I think, uh, made a very good case as to why uh... inflation and even hyperinflation is inevitable uh... we are on a one-way on a one-way ticket it seems to me uh... to me when i saw bernanke backing away from tapering and when i saw the markets reacting throwing a hissy fit as david stockman would say uh... because of the mere mention of a possible tapering i think that told you an awful lot it must have scared the bejeebers out of the central bankers to realize they don't have a choice they have to keep printing more and more faster and faster Gene Epstein's uh, review of the budget I think was very, very, uh, very good, and I would uh, urge you to go pick up a copy of his article at Barron's because I think uh, he's done a remarkable job of putting the current situation uh in uh in the context of our history. We are in very, very much uncharted waters. We're in a period of time, I think, when the lid could blow off in a hyperinflation. I do not rule out, though, by the way, a deflationary depression, because that is what the markets really want to do. And ultimately the markets uh I think will have their say. Uh Daniel McAdams is always pointing out the hypocrisy in our foreign policy. Uh, the lies, uh, the, the uh, deception, uh, the tremendous amount of uh, treasure and blood, blood and treasure that's spent on on killing people and taking over countries, shaping their governments for the sake of big profits so those people down there in Washington can drive their BMWs and their Mercedes-Benz and live high on the hog. Well, uh, we have only a minute left. I'd lo- like to uh, tell you that next week our guests will be Chris Krupe of Paramount Gold and Silver. I talked about companies in the gold space that I think are really exciting. This is certainly one. It has just a shy of 10 million gold equivalent ounces in two properties in Mexico and Nevada. Uh, selling at 26. that's about $19 uh, per ounce of gold in the ground and lots of upside potential. Chris will be with us next week. Also, Michael Maloney of goldsilver.com. I think one of, from one of the top uh, hard money internet sites. Uh, will be with me, as will Jim Paplava. Really an honor to have Jim with me, who hosts a show very much uh, like this show, to a great extent, I would say, anyway. Uh, And Jim Paplava will be with me as well. Uh, so I hope that you'll join me next week. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this show uh, the number one show on the Voice of America Business Channel. I want to thank also our sponsors for making this show economically viable and Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.